I'm Seattle Times political reporter Jim Bruner. And I'm Seattle Times City Hall reporter Dan Beekman. Let's talk politics. Welcome to episode 25 of the Overcast, the Seattle Times Weekly Politics Podcast. This week, we sat down with Seattle Mayor Ed Murray to talk about the state of the city. Specifically, we talked a lot about his proposal to raise taxes to help deal with Seattle's homelessness crisis, if uh, spending additional money is going gonna, is gonna to do much good, and he defended his plan and said why he thinks it will. We also talked to him about the tax on sugary beverages that he wants to levy on distributors of those beverages to pay for some educational programs. And we talked to him about um, his resistance to President Donald Trump's administration, some of the things he's doing and not doing to try to fight back against Trump on behalf of his constituents who wanted to do that. And the little back and forth, in fact, he got into with uh, Seattle City Council member Shama Sawan on that. But for winners and losers this week, uh, let's start with a winner. You could definitely make the argument that pro-density uh, urbanists uh, in Seattle, uh, and maybe to some extent uh, developers and the people who own land in the university district uh, were big winners this week. After years of work on a major upzone proposal for the university district centered around the light rail station that's coming in there in 2021, the city council voted 9-0 unanimous vote to pass the upzone. It's going to mean uh, buildings up to 30 stories in the university district. So a whole, a whole district full of buildings like the size of that, the Safeco well, Safeco Tower, there, right? There may not be buildings that tall on every lot, on every block, but uh, there's a good chance that, yeah, the University District will be Seattle's next high-rise neighborhood. Urbanists on a roll, and I'm sure they'll continue. Yeah, there's a whole series of up zones that the mayor and uh, the city council are going to be looking at over the next more than a year. Well, moving to the suburbs, we'll go with this week's uh, loser in local politics. And that's people who wanted to see uh, Congressman Dave Reichert, Republican Congressman Dave Reichert, hold a town hall. It's not really a surprise, maybe, if you follow Dave Reichert. He, he doesn't view in these in-person town halls to be valuable. He said that they're not productive, that especially lately, it's just a bunch of people hollering and yelling. I went out and covered a protest outside his office today with a, you know 500 or more constituents who said, look, you know, it's part of the job. You should face us. He's refused to do it. Instead, he went on. Uh, did an interview that was aired on, on a Facebook Live uh, feed uh, with KCTS9 journalist Enrique Cerna, and he says that's the kind of thing he's going to do. He uh, He's not going to do a town hall, um, so they'll continue to be protests, but I expect him to continue to, to refuse to do them. We're here with Seattle Mayor Ed Murray uh, to talk to him about the state of the city address that he gave uh, yesterday and about the state of the city in general. Mayor, thanks for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me on. So I want to start with one of your speech yesterday. There was a lot of news in it, uh, more than in in your annual state of the city speeches in the past couple of years, I think. There were a number of items that that were headline worthy. Um, One of them was that you announced that you propose, you're going to propose a, a new five-year, $275 million property tax levy to pay for homeless services, and that would double what Seattle spends on homeless services uh, annually. Why does the city need another $55 million a year 
um, to try to combat homelessness? Well, one of the things that, that we know about homelessness is that it's, it's a national crisis, whether you're in suburban towns or state capital or in California cities or Oregon. And it is a national problem. And I declared a state of emergency in the hopes that we would see, as we would in an earthquake, um, federal assistance. You're talking about you pro- proclaimed a, a state of emergency in the city over homelessness in November 2015. 15, yeah, sorry, yes. And, uh, you know, it's clear that it's clear, particularly with the new administration, um, that we are not going to see a partner in dealing with what is a national crisis. Um, And as I said, Seattle can't wait. When I go into these unauthorized encampments, the level of tragedy that you come across, uh, the people that you meet, um, the situation is not going to get better for them and it's not going to get better for the city. It wouldn't be my first choice or even my second choice, but... Uh, honestly, we don't have any other choice. What What is the money going to be used for? Sure. And, you know, will there be a metric of some kind that no. at the end of the five years we'll, we'll have a measurable reduction? Sure. Or, or what, what's your so goal? I, I think that's the most important question to ask. And it is based on um, the reforms that we're putting in place called Pathways Home that were based on a series of uh, studies that were done of, of the city and the county's delivery system that pointed out some significant flaws in our delivery system. Uh, as people told me in the first few months I was in office from the Obama administration, King County and Seattle are probably one of the worst examples about how you deal with homelessness. Uh, so by reforming the system and focusing on putting money into those organizations that can actually produce measurable results. And we know those measurable results are more at the end of actually getting people into housing, not so much focused on shelter. And let me give you an example. We have not, as a city, uh, bid our contracts for over a decade. So right now we're in the process of bidding all of our homeless contracts based on a certain set of outcomes, based on a certain set of metrics. So uh, I understand what you're saying, but the city has... um has increased the amount uh, of money uh, that it spends on on homeless services in each of the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not even talking about this new proposed mm-hmm. levy, uh, the spending has been going up. Uh, and now you're putting these reforms in place. You say that you, you know that the spending that you're doing now could be more efficient and, and your reforms are going to try mm-hmm. to make it more efficient. Uh, why not wait until... You know, you have a more efficient system before you go to the to the voters and say, give us twice as much. Well, two reasons. Um, you know, the reforms are in the process of being put in place, and we're seeing some early indications uh, of improvement. But secondly, and more importantly, the crisis continues to grow. The number of homeless continue to grow everywhere, um, in our city and elsewhere. Uh, and, you know, the, the girls that they pulled out of the encampment, the 16-year-old girl that they pulled out of the encampment who was being held at gunpoint and used for sex trafficking, uh, that's not going to wait. The toddlers that are in those things, that's not going to wait. Um, we can't wait. Uh, and what we're doing, and basically what I propose is that I don't send a package to council, but we work with outside stakeholders to do a package that is sent to the voters. And let me get to, to Jim, one of your questions. One of the things that I want in this package is basically an expert review panel that is independent of the mayor and of the council that judges us on those basic practices, those best practices, and indicates whether we are meeting and funding as we should. Uh, Because, you know, I, I actually 
shifted money out of some programs in the last budget and I put it into the programs that have been identified as the best practice, only to have council backfill the cuts that we made. So somebody is going to have to, uh, independent, is going to have to say, no, that's not what the voters signed on for. The voters signed on investing in best practices, not something that may be really good and not something that may do good, but doesn't necessarily directly affect the homeless crisis. That's interesting. I mean, I, when I was covering City Hall going back even years, there's been a resistance sometimes among some of the social service providers to to be judged from the outside or to put metrics on or there have been issues, for example. I think some, some of the concerns may be valid with um, you know tracking of homeless people, privacy concerns. Are, the, are you going to – you're saying that there will be the political will – that you're going to exercise so, to put those metrics in place? Well, I'm going to, I mean, we are putting them in place. They're part of the bidding that's already been sent out, mm -hmm. um, the, the rebidding of, of 10 years' worth of contracts. But there is this unanswered question about whether business as usual is the way to approach these things. And, you know, we have taken a very different approach um, to this issue um, and how we are choosing to fund things. Well, you know, you mentioned outside stakeholders, and one thing that I thought was noteworthy when he rolled this, uh, made this announcement yesterday, was that uh, the two people that you're putting in, you're asking to come up with the, with this ballot measure, this plan. One is Daniel Malone of uh, Downtown Emergency Service Center, a homeless services provider, who works in that uh, that field and knows a lot about it. The other is Nick Hanauer, who uh, is a tech entrepreneur, very wealthy, has been involved in politics in recent years and in various ways and and uh, is very involved with, with that and pushing various policies, but um, as far as I know, isn't necessarily an expert on, on homelessness and homeless services. Uh, why, why put him partly in charge of this? Well, first, I think both people one, Nick lives here. Nick's involved. He's a civic a, 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 a civic activist. Um, he uh, uh, is somebody who cares deeply about doing something about what he sees happening on our streets. Uh, Daniel Malone is is um, somebody who understands homelessness from the inside, so I think they balance each other out. Um, I think that you know you also can't do this separate from uh, the human service delivery system itself. And I look at Daniel as somebody who actually is pretty good um, and pretty fair at understanding that we need to reform the system and we need to start investing uh, in best practices and stop obsessing about shelters and encampments. But, but you know, with Hanauer, you know, it would be sort of less surprising if if we saw him supporting, you know, a campaign for this ballot measure. You know, either financially, as he has with other campaigns, or through his network, uh, but actually being one of two people in charge of, as far as I can tell, kind of drawing up this plan sure. was sort of surprising. So um, he will, there'll be more than two. We're asking a series of people to sit down, including two council members and other people in the Seattle community who are experts in this area. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons I asked him is exactly why you said, uh, this campaign needs to be funded. Um, and, you know, Seattle passed a, a campaign reform initiative, and the authors of that initiative pointed out they made a mistake. I'm restricted from raising money now on ballot measures, so we have to look to other people to do this. Just one last question on that. I, I understand what you're saying, mm -hmm. but, but also, is it a case where if, if you need somebody to help pay for the campaign, then they get to help draw up no. the proposal? I mean, that's No, kind of but obviously I need somebody who both can bring in the human service um, providers and somebody who knows how to 
uh, work campaigns. Um, these, are, these are not cheap. Uh, uh, you know, we don't have the limits we do for candidates when it comes to initiative or referendum battles. So it sounds like that's part of the equation is somebody who would be on the ground running for the campaign too, maybe. And, you know, for listeners who might not know, Nick Hanauer is one of the biggest political donors in the state. He's been behind, um, you know, gun uh, gun control um, initiatives, minimum wage initiatives, a big donor to a lot of Democratic politicians and uh, mover and shaker. He actually lives in the Highlands, I think, but he does, his offices are downtown. Um, and somebody who's a pretty good expert on policy and, and progressive politics. You also announced yesterday you want to have a uh, $16 million a year tax on sugary drinks. Um, what's that for and what's, what's your pitch for it? Uh, first of all, um, I mean, we know just uh, in recent months that sugar is, is uh, as bad as cigarettes and, and how we consume it. And other cities, uh, Oakland, San Francisco, Philadelphia, to name some, uh, have passed a, a tax on, on uh, uh, drinks that have sugar, pre-made drinks that have sugar in it. So the focus of this is actually on investing in the education summit that we had and the recommendations that came out of that that focus on equity and outcomes for young people in our schools, young people of color, particularly young black students who are the most likely not to graduate from high school. I mean, literally the numbers are around 40 to 50% of young African-Americans who are not graduating from our high schools are not graduating on time. So we're gonna invest in things such as mentoring, uh, such as summer learning, because again, if you come from a poorer family, you're not gonna get all the advantages of, that keeps you involved um, and, and, and retains that knowledge. What, what's the nexus between soda pop and educational outcomes for low-income people? Well, the, the nexus is this. We want to raise healthy people. You don't raise healthy people if they don't have a good education. We are failing um, uh, our African-American students at a rate that is about the fifth of any large city in the nation. Um, that leads to a very unhealthy lifestyle. Uh, we know that. It leads to, it leads to um, whether it's diets uh, or uh, other things that are not helpful. Um, it, 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 you don't graduate from high school, you're not going to have a good job. You're probably not going to have a stable income. You're probably going to have addiction problems. You're going to have less of a stable relationship. Um, so all of those things are connected to our education system. So, you know, there, is, you know, there are no perfect nexus between taxes and uh, the type of programs we want to do when we live in a state with some of the limited revenue resources we have. And we've seen this uh, soda tax or sugary drink tax uh, debate play out in other cities, as, as you've mentioned. And, um, you know, one of the critiques uh, has of a tax like this has been that it's a regressive tax, that, um, that uh, it, the burden falls on people who are buying soda and tend, that tends to be people of lower incomes, for example. What do you say to that critique? Well, then, then the cigarette taxes are a regressive tax. We actually know it improved people's um, outcomes as far as their health, and I think this will as well. Uh, and there are very few progressive taxes in Washington State, which is the other challenge that we face. Very few progressive taxes. No income tax. New income in Olympia, tax. they tried to put in an income tax recently. I think it failed. Mm -hmm. so, you given any thought to that in Seattle? Could you do that? Well, so there's research that's been done, and there's conversations that have gone on about whether there is any constitutional justification under our state constitution for sort of the upper 1%, but that's an, still an unknown question at this point. I, I would also say, you know, I've been down this before, this path at the state level, uh, when we did pass um, a package that included basically a, a tax on soda, 
only to basically have the the makers of those products spend more money than they would have spent paying the tax, defeating that measure on the ballot. Right. Do you expect to see them here? And also that you know reminds me that uh, uh, Jim pointed out the other day that uh, in your campaign in 2013, this came up running against then Mayor Mike McGinn, and he was talking about uh, a sort of tax, I think, to pay for parks. And you at the time expressed skepticism and said that you didn't think that uh, that that you could get that passed. So uh, obviously I, I uh, had recently come off of having lost at the state level, but the real issue there was that I was supporting something called a parks district um, that would create hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for our parks and uh, community centers. Uh, he didn't at the time, although he did when I, I, I put it on the ballot. Um, and a soda tax or a sugar tax basically raises $16 million. It wasn't gonna address um, really a single park in this or, or community center in this city. You've been uh, in the headlines some yourself, you know, for standing up against the Trump administration, um, saying that Seattle's a welcoming city. It's been referred to as a sanctuary city. Dan has pointed out that that term is sometimes hard to define. Um, but Seattle City Council member Shama Sawant uh, recently suggested you're not doing enough. I think she suggested that the police should be, help me here, Dan, but should be sort of proactively blocking the feds from enforcing uh, immigration laws. Um, but, you know, in this city, it's a very liberal city. She's a socialist Seattle City Council member. She says you're not doing enough. What's your response to that? Well, um, Donald Trump is president because 77,000 people in a few swing states voted for him, uh, states that Councilmember Sawant went to and, and uh, campaigned against Hillary Clinton. So I think she needs to ask herself who's done what here. Uh, she also encouraged me to use the police force to prevent federal authorities um, from removing people from this city. Um, we believe we have the rule of law on our side. We believe the Trump administration is wrong when it comes to the so-called sanctuary cities. Um, but it would absolutely, if I felt I needed to use the police force, uh, that would be breaking uh, my oath, and I would need to resign, and I think she would need to do the same. So talk about what you uh, you feel like you are doing in a concrete way to sort of represent your constituents who, you know, want to see you or the, the city of Seattle yeah. resisting the Trump administration or standing up to it or whatever. Sure. Well, I, along with other mayors, after the election, began to organize ourselves and uh, begin to understand what our options were. Uh, and particularly with the mayor of Anaheim and the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island, I'm one of three leaders on this issue um, who've, who've worked nationally. Uh, we've identified what we could do here with our own folks who may not have um, uh, clear documentation. Uh, we have had a series of workshops with lawyers and the like to help families learn how they can stay together, to help people figure out how they get to the next step. Uh, of, uh, of um, a, a better, basically, legal status, for, for lack of a better term. Um, we have filed FOIA requests yesterday uh, with the Department of Homeland Security and the Justice Department and others, um, asking for information to understand what they're going to do to us. And we are prepared to take legal action and have already signed on to one legal case. Um, because, again, the basic premise is that he can stop, he can make us cooperate with him, and the courts have said that is not the case, and he said he can punish us through um, the budget, and the Constitution itself would say that's not the case. Right, so I guess to quickly follow up, to two things you mentioned. One, the city is, is spending some money, uh, $250,000 I think it is, to try to uh, work with immigrants, including uh, 
undocumented immigrants mm-hmm. to help them know uh, their rights and uh, uh, and uh, get um, for those who can help people become citizens, things like that. Um, you know, one thing that uh, the city hasn't done yet that some other cities have done is set up a um, sort of a legal defense fund where literally the city is helping to fund lawyers to defend people facing deportation in immigration court. Is that something that you want to do? Or? So when I, when I announced the money, the $250,000, I also announced what the money would be used for, everything from hotlines to funds going to the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project, which actually does legal defense for um, uh, uh, folks who are dealing with immigration issues. The cities, mostly the cities that have actually um, funded or are using their own attorneys for defense of immigrants tend to be unified governments where the city and county are the same entity like San Francisco or New York. We are still exploring whether we would do that um, or whether there would have to be some other arrangement perhaps with the county because the, this, you know, it's, again, we're not a unified government, so not everything sits with us. And the other just quick follow-up, I guess, uh, uh, is on the um, FOIA requests. Mm-hmm. I mean, we should be clear about what that is. Uh, uh, you're, you're saying that you could sue, uh, but a FOIA request is it's like the request for information Jim and I send to um, uh, the your office, your office. <laughs> or other offices on a regular basis, right? This is, in a sense, no different from what any citizen or like a journalist would do. To our knowledge, we're the first city to do this, and we believe the information will probably lead um, to the basis for a potential lawsuit. Um, you, uh, what's your, you know, is there any balance that you strike at all on, on the immigration issue with deportations? Do you want to kind of maintain it the status quo? You know, there was this incident that's made news where a state patrol officer, um, I think, uh, came across an accident and, and there was an undocumented immigrant involved in the accident, didn't cause it, turned out that you know, the officer checked, I think, the person's license, turned out to have been a multiply, I think, de- deported felon. Um, you know, in, in your view, and, the, and then now there's an investigation of whether the officer followed state patrol pop policies. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people out there who were like, well, you know, look, the guy is a deported felon. Why, why wouldn't the officer um, act on that if he, if he found out about it? What's your view of how Seattle police should interact, you know, when they come across people? If somebody is a felon, that person should be arrested. If somebody has outstanding warrants, that person should be arrested. Um, and then, of course, the federal authorities would turn them over. I, I think the chief has identified two cases like that uh, in the last eight years. So it's not an issue here of um, you know, not going after criminals or people getting a, a pass because they're undocumented. That's a, that's a confusion of the issue. The, the current law is in the state and county and most other places. Uh, and will remain that if you are caught um, for whatever reason and you turn out to be a felon or you're committing a felony, um, you're going to be arrested. You're going to do time, should that be how it turns out. And the feds are probably going to take you away. I think you need to remember that when I look at, and I spend a lot of time with Chief O'Toole looking at crime statistics in the city in general and repeat offenders who are out, basically pushed out after a few days, most of those individuals, almost all of those individuals, like 99.9%, are American citizens that have numerous charges against them and spend less than 19 days um, in confinement at the county. And before we go, I just want to squeeze one more 
issue in here, and it's something that I covered after leaving your speech yesterday at uh, Idris Mosque in North Seattle. Then I head down to the City Council at City Hall, uh, where the council passed uh, a major upzone of the university district that you had sent down to them. In your speech, you seem to link, from what I heard, some of the opposition to the upzones that you have in the queue. You know, this University District 1 was, was the first of many neighborhoods that you want to upzone in the city. You seem to link opposition to that or, or um, wariness of those upzones with the Trump administration and sort of saying, you know, Trump is trying to keep people, immigrants out of our country, refugees out of our country, and people here are trying to keep uh, folks out of their neighborhoods. Um, can you talk about sure. that? Sure, and, and actually, I, I said we can't be like them. I didn't say we were like them. And the words were that we've been a city <clears throat> that has stepped up, stepped out, uh, and has been a welcoming city. And uh, we have to do that, what I said, when it comes to the issue of affordable housing. You know, most of the units and most of the growth that you see in the city over the last three years that I've been mayor was actually permitted before I became mayor, almost all of it. Um, and what we see is that this city, because of a 20-year battle, grew, but it did not grow affordably. And now we have a plan. And it, in our urban villages, it requires mo more growth to get the affordability we need, particularly from developers. We have a fee. For instance, in South Lake Union, it'll be 88% higher on the commercial fee than in the rest of the city. So we are actually, for the first time, and yesterday was a huge moment in Seattle history, we have inclusionary zoning when it comes to affordable housing. So what's important about that is often what we hear is somehow we're destroying neighborhoods by making them affordable. Um, there is no other plan. This city is going to grow, and we need to make a ch choice right now because it took 20 years to break that long ja log jam. Whether basically we're going to put up a wall and say, no, we are not going to grow, and if we don't grow, we won't grow affordably. There is no other plan. And what you're talking about with the plan and, and the mandatory inclusionary housing is uh, the deal where you're saying, okay, we're going to give uh, more capacity for development in various neighborhoods in the, the urban villages in Seattle, and then yeah. you're going to require, uh, after those with those up zones, that the developers <coughs> include in their projects uh, some affordable housing units or pay the city so the city can right. help build those. Right, and so what's so incredibly important about that is you have this affordability issue. And by the way, if you, if you look at any solution to the housing crisis, it has to also be solved through creating more affordable housing in general, not just um, uh, shelters. So what we did is, for the first time, when developers develop housing, they will build units in that, house, in that housing or pay into a fund. That is new. We are going to triple the number of affordable units in this city. And, you know, I have to tell you, we're getting calls from Canada. We're getting calls from uh, states around the country, cities around the country, who are trying to figure out what we're doing because they're reading in, in uh, the periodicals that study this stuff that this is actually one of the best practices you can do. In our urban villages, you're going to get a couple more floors in some areas, one in others, for in return to make this city more affordable. So you talk a lot about affordability. Um, you know, have you given any thought to, you know, every time, I don't, I don't want to say every time there's a new problem, but frequently when there's a, an issue, 
that, that comes up in the city, you know, the homelessness crisis, mm-hmm. you, an answer from City Hall is let's have a new tax. Mm-hmm. You know, every time the uh, housing levy comes up, it gets doubled. Mm-hmm. We've got taxes cascading down, you know, from Sound Transit and others. Um, obviously, property values are high in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a lot of wealth in Seattle. Right. How do you, in your mind, you know, balance out that that issue? Because there are people who live in houses in Seattle who maybe they're, you know, housing value goes up, but you don't really get anything out of that until you sell. Meanwhile, their property taxes are going up, sales taxes, you know, car tab taxes, others are going up. How do you balance that in your mind when you talk about affordability in sure. Seattle and so, what City Hall can do directly? Sure. So so let, let's, first of all, remember that um, the limited number of taxes we have that are progressive. So we have to deal with the world we're living in. And let's look at what kind of city we want to have. Do we want to have transit? Um, do we want to have affordable housing? Do we want to do something about our parks or our schools? Seattle has said yes. The voters have said yes. Seattle remains uh, a city that has taxes lower than some of our surrounding cities. Um, there's part of um, South County that is interested in incorporating in Seattle. If they incorporated, they're an unincorporated King County now, their taxes would actually go down. Seattle is now the 18th largest city. But our tax burden, the last time I checked, and that was about a year ago with our budget people, is in around the 50th as far as our tax burden. So you do have to balance it out. But I also know, having represented a legislative district for 18 years, that this is a city that believes a government should step up and deal with some of our problems, whether it's transportation, whether it's education, whether it's the homeless issue. Um, I believe that the state should be doing more. I believe the Fed should be doing more, but I'm not the governor and I'm not the president. Uh, And I am, you know, uh, in many ways, an FDR Democrat. We've got some serious problems, and I think that we need to do something to make this a better city. And taxes are the price of that. Well, I don't know how else you improve your equity and education outcome. I don't know how else you increase the number of affordable units. I don't know how you increase, you know, we made the largest increase to the bus system in Seattle since the 1970s. Think about that, the largest those buses are basically packed. And what I hear is, why don't you do it again? On the affordable housing levy, people are saying, why didn't you triple it? Why did you just double it? We want to live here. So um, again, um, I'm, I, don't, I, I think the tax burden is something that I'm concerned about. But I also think I pointed out to you where we are relative to other jurisdictions uh, and the few tools that local government have to deal with. That's a wrap for episode 25 of The Overcast. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mayor Ed Murray for being our guest this week. Let us know what you think of the show and send us any suggestions or comments you have. You can hit us up on Twitter at dbeekman at jim underscore bruner. Email us at seattletimesovercast at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail at 206-464-8778. Subscribe and listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. And until next week, have a cloudy day.